Hey guys, Leah Pika here. Today's guest is wildly famous across the globe for bringing a touch of zen to your presentations. Eee! Stay tuned to find out who's gracing the stage on the Present Beyond Measure Show, episode 25. Welcome to the Present Beyond Measure Show, a podcast at the intersection of analytics, data visualization, and presentation awesomeness. You'll learn the best tips, tools, and techniques for creating analytics, visualizations, and presentations that inspire data-driven decisions and move you forward. If you're ready to get your insights understood and acted upon, you're in the right place. And now your host, Leah Pika. Hey guys, welcome to the 25th episode of Present Beyond Measure, good old silver. This is a very, very special episode for a number of reasons. So far, I've been rocking out with the very best minds in analytics and data visualization, and it's been a wild ride. But today marks a truly defining moment in the show in that I had the supreme honor and privilege of interviewing someone whose contribution was a pivotal force in my entire presentation philosophy and career path. And I'm not alone. His work sits at the top of the must-read presentation excellence stack of books. And when he invited himself onto my podcast, I literally almost passed out, like on the floor, in my office, comatose, defibrillator. (laughs) Then I revived myself and broke the Guinness Book of World Records for letting out the loudest squee ever heard. (laughs) Not kidding truth. All right. So I won't keep you waiting any longer. Let's get to today's guest. Hey, everybody. I'm just a little beside myself over today's guest, who is basically the Elvis Presley of the presentation world. His approach to communication takes principles and lessons from the Zen arts of Japan to reveal simple tips for communicating better. He's invited to speak and conduct seminars for companies and universities around the world, and he's consulted for many Fortune 500 companies. But perhaps he's best known for penning Presentation Zen, an award-winning, best-selling book that's considered by many to be the Bible of stellar presentation, myself included. In fact, it's the book that pretty much launch the entire direction of my current career. I give you the one and only Gar Reynolds. Welcome. Ohio gozaimasu. Ohio gozaimasu. Yes, very good. You should be on radio. That's just a great voice and great delivery. Thank you. Really. I mean, I'm going to, you're going to be on NPR before we know it. And then remember me when. From your lips. Oh yeah. yeah. Okay. Sure. Oh, well, thank you. That That's very generous. And um, I just want to say you're, you're such a revered figure, obviously, in the presentation world. I, I can't imagine how many people your book and careers your book has influenced. You know, for me personally, after one of my executives asked me to make my PowerPoints less exciting because he got a migraine, watching me animate every letter of my bullet points in, you know, I, I found your book and nothing's been the same. So I, I, I'm so grateful. And, you know, I, I just want to jump right in and talk about... Okay. Presentation Zen. So you bring this whole aspect of, you know, your life in beautiful Japan. I would love to know how living there influenced your perspective on presenting. Yeah, well, it's not a gimmick. I mean, it can sound kind of gimmicky because everything's Zen. I mean, there's a million Zen books. (laughs) Um, But I've been living here since 89. And I have been here except for graduate school in Hawaii and then working for Apple in Silicon Valley and Cupertino for a while and then uh, coming back here. So it came about organically. I mean, it wasn't I wasn't trying to uh, sell a book or anything. I had the website first. Everything was free for years. Um, Yeah, but... So it's the Zen arts, really, not really Zen itself. But so Zen, what is Zen? I mean, you can't explain what Zen is, which is why the Zen arts popped up like Sumie or, mm-hmm. you know, it's a kind of a calligraphy or brush brush painting rather uh, or um, Sado, uh, tea ceremony and things like that, because you, you can't explain it. So we try to show it <laughs> indirectly through the arts. And one of the key tenets, of course, is simplicity. Mm-hmm. And what does it mean? And one of the key aspects that seemed most relevant was the idea of just removing the non-essential or not including it to begin with and making that decision. So there's that's where the restraint, simplicity, and then there's a naturalness, you know, a realness in in delivery. So it just sort of hit me one day 
those three concepts. I mean, there are many concepts and those are very broad, obviously, but restraint seemed to um, be most relevant to the preparation. And in storytelling, any script writer, any screenwriter will tell you, any storyteller will tell you that, you you know, you have to kill a thousand of your babies before you get to, you keep two yep. or three. So that's just the way it is. Any, any artist will tell you that. And it can seem wasteful sometimes, um, you know, in business we're told just be really, really efficient. And just if you got 10 things, do 10 things yeah. rather than a hundred things. But filmmakers will shoot, you know, a hundred hours or more than that, probably for, for two hours. Right. 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 Because, um, so that's part of it. So that, you know, there's exploration, there's discovery, and it applies not just to presentation, but any kinds of communication, you know, in, in leadership or in management to really take the time to think about what's important and what's not. So it wasn't a gimmick, but it, I didn't ever thought it would, you know, be anything. I just did it because, I had, can I talk about presentations then? Like how it, how I got into presentation rather. Please so, do. Well, I was born uh, in uh, upstate New York. In, no, so. Ooh, we're going way back. Yeah, that's too far back. So, in, but in high school, I did my first presentation, uh, which was 35 millimeter, two carousel slides. Remember wow. those? You're too young. Anyway, but there were carousels. Vaguely. Yeah. Well, look at Mad Men. There's an episode yep. where they do the Kodak carousel. And it, actually the quality of it is as good as anything today, but you basically had um, I guess a cross dissolve was the only animation. Mm. Uh, so you had two, two, you know, so you could do that. It was a, it was a beautiful thing. And I was like a little Al Gore. I did a presentation about pollution and the environment. And this is before the Mac, for example, had been invented. Interesting. <laughs> so that's how far back. Wow. And then, so speed up. And okay, now it's like the nineties I'm working. Now we have PowerPoint, mm. which is, I thought it was Yay. great because you could mix video and all that stuff. And I was doing it very visually and every, it just in my little local tribe, I became president of a, of a Mac user group. I was doing presentations. I got noticed and Apple noticed and Apple asked me to come work, not in, not in their visual team, but in marketing uh, for them. So I left Japan to do that. Came back here around 2003, back to Japan. And I was just doing this locally. I mean, people would see me present and ask me to do help. And then I started going into big companies. Mm. Uh, and then I just gave it away for free. Okay, I'll make a blog. Became big around 2003. I was on 2005, a little bit late. Remember blogging when that was like everything? I do, vaguely. Yeah, so, so uh, that was as before YouTube even. Mm. So yeah, that's how I got started. And then uh, the the presentationszen.com really grew. I mean, there was just tons and tons of followers and then mm -hmm. publishers ask you to write. So basically, if it wasn't for the interwebs, uh, you know, I wouldn't be anywhere. And that's true for a lot of people because I was doing locally in my tribe, you know, I had here, but it's just as far as yeah. basically I could, you know, talk, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or, or so basically I was in Japan and Tokyo and, and then around here in Nara and Osaka and Kyoto. But then because of the interwebs, which is just a series of tubes, as you know, but that just sent, sent it out. And so it went crazy there. Um, yeah. And then I wrote a book and that reaches more people and <laughs> small book. the rest is history. It really is. I mean, I, I've recommended your book in every single talk workshop post that I've ever done because I feel it was a critical starting point for me that broke so many patterns that I was doing that once the goggles came off, I saw everywhere around me and I thought, mm. oh, how do I, how am I the only one that knows about this? And I remember going to an analytics conference 10 years ago and I was seeing it everywhere again. And I was thinking one day, one day I'm <laughs> going to be out there spreading this message because I just think there's an epidemic of people's time being squandered by these presentations because none of us have the tool set that, you know, mm -hmm. you have. So how do we empower people with that? And it goes up the chain, you know, it goes up to the managers. I've had students say, there's no way my manager is going to go for this because he wants it done this way. Mm -hmm. But I don't think the audience always knows what's best for them either. They're, they haven't been trained to retrieve the information effectively necessarily. Sure. People know what they're used to. So, I mean, yes. no one ever, no one asked for, if we just stick with Apple, no one asked for a Mac, no one asked for an iPod. <laughs> right. So people don't actually know what's possible. Yeah. So it's you we might still be using the, the horse and buggy. Right? <laughs> I just want a better horse. <laughs> But, it, but you bring up a, a, a good issue, which is, of course, is pushback and you're always going to get that. So that is a legitimate concern. So, you know, but any kind of change, any kind of leadership, if you're a if you're a thought leader, <laughs> if I can use that term, if you're you know, if you're kind of a pioneer or a little bit of a leader in your space, 
you have to push, you have to push things yeah. and it, and it won't always be comfortable, but rather than going, uh, this is where the Japanese idea of a step-by-step Kaizen approach was mm-hmm. gradual improvement. There's sort of a, don't, you don't have to go all crazy and go all like Ted style, Steve Jobs style. Yeah. Uh, if what you're using is nothing like that now, but still you can embrace the ideas of restraint and simplicity and a more, you know, naturalness, conversational style and delivery, but you do it subtly to where yeah. you won't get that pushback. And in fact, you won't notice. I mean, that's, that's the hallmark of good design anyways, that you don't notice it. You don't notice good design. Usually you notice bad design. You don't notice when communication is really done well because you just, you focus on the content. Wow. That was, that was interesting. That makes me think, or Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. And then later you might think, wow, well, maybe it was the way she did it. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I found what was happening when I started instituting your principles in my own work was the reaction I was getting days and weeks afterward were not just, yeah, let's do what you recommended. This is great. But also people were like, what are you doing? That's something's going on. Like you're doing something different. And I was like, well, I have a secret. I'm trying to actually learn how to do this. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. And it snowballed from there. But probably what you did wasn't just the visuals, but that you took, which really the key tenets is that you took the time, maybe even before you opened up, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever you're using, Tableau or Excel or something, and really thought about the audience. What's the most important aspects that they want to see? And you just think about what's important and what's not. Maybe that's really. And then you sat down, sketched things out and then eventually got the kind of data or visual data that you were looking for. A hundred percent. There's an entire section of my workshop that doesn't even go into PowerPoint or charts. It's the work that's done before. And people don't realize that that even exists. I don't know if you're familiar with Olivia Mitchell. She's a presentation <laughs> consultant in Australia. Yeah. She attended my sem- my first seminar in New Zealand about oh, wow. 10 years ago. Yeah, <laughs> she was a That's so funny. Well, she has this method called presenting by boxes that I found extraordinarily useful because it creates laser focus for establishing your big story, your introduction, how you set the stage, your story, the supporting meat underneath that story, and then the action that you want people to take. Mm And I found that really great for any kind of corporate meeting, large conference, Mm -hmm. you know, people have always said that's one of the most, um, helpful things that they learn because they don't know where to start. Mm, Yeah. That sounds good. I I was not aware (laughs) of that particular. I mean, there are many, this is why I called presentations and an approach and not a method because there are many methods and there isn't, Mm. there's more than one, you know, road to Nirvana, if you will, there's more than one way to do things Mm -hmm. and there isn't just one right way. I mean, that's a tenet of design anyway. Um, But as an approach to, to simplify things, to slow down, to really, to think, not about yourself, but uh, about the the story and the data and what does it mean? And how will it help them? Always. I mean, that's the hallmark of good business, right? It's not about trying to make money. I mean, we hope to make money. (laughs) Obviously it's a business, but you know, how can you, how can you improve people's lives? That's what we're trying to do, no matter what kind of business it is. And of course, for yourself to create indispensability so that you're someone that everyone's going to want on your team. And I think that's a big side benefit of, well, you know, I should write a book about that and make a million dollars, you know, like I could, <laughs> I could say, Hey, this is Gar Reynolds. I'm here in my garage with my Lamborghini. <laughs> well, okay. Maybe three of your fans will get that if you're on the interwebs, but you know, cause like, like, like speak and grow rich or something. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because it can, it can make a huge difference. I can just tell you. And, and I'm, the thing is I'm, I have stage fright. I'm shy. I would just rather be in my pajamas and watch Cartoon Network. That's what I'd rather do. <laughs> So I'm just a normal person. I'm certainly not, uh, you know, slick or anything like that. But when I worked at Apple, for example, there was a couple of times when I presented for the whole marketing team uh, or marketing uh, Marcom team. Mm -hmm. So maybe 200 people or so. And so I said, okay, I'll take the presentation. I had a group for about a month, but then in the end I just did it. Mm -hmm. And they, because I, I like doing it and they didn't want to do it. So I, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> but then afterwards, I mean, it's, you know, the compliments you get, people are just, wow, I just had no, wow, wow. And it's, it's the content, but also the way of delivering it. And I'm not special. I'm just, I mean, I'm just an ordinary dork. So ima- <laughs> it's, what, imagine what it can do. It really can make a difference in your career, in your career. It's not everything. So people misunderstand. Well, that's not the most important thing. 
always the straw man. Of course, it's not the most important thing, but it's a necessary thing. Yeah. That's all we're ever saying. It is necessary. Yes. And it can make a huge difference. I mean, necessary if you want to be really make a difference in the world. It's not necessary if you think you can keep a good job, you know, on the back of Boeing someplace. Right. Okay, fine. But if you're really trying to make a difference in the world, especially an entrepreneur, I mean, an entrepreneur cannot hide in the you back. Have to, yes. You know, they are, they are the face of the company. Yeah. Well, I can share, I, I have severe stage fright as well, but it's, I think also channeling that energy into an enthusiasm and excitement to serve this audience, to bring them a moment that they'll remember and know that the importance of this. And I think it's all about what people really want to make of their careers or their businesses, what their aspirations are. It's as far as they want to take it, because sometimes I've met with people have met me with resistance where uh, this is, I don't do it that often. It's not really important. And I think, okay, that's, that's entirely your path and decision. But, um, I think when people realize the power of that, as I did, when I started doing this more effectively, um, it came very clear. Yeah. And it's still most people, I mean, it's like, there's a lot of presentation books and videos and there's Mm -hmm. Ted and all that. Even so, even if still most people are not going to really excel at it. Yeah. But most people won't even try or they'll give up. So it it still can make a huge difference in your career. I mean, it's a competitive advantage. I don't usually talk in those terms. (laughs) That's not why we're doing it. You're not trying to kill the other guy by being a better presenter. That's ridiculous. Right. right. Uh, But, you know, but in the spirit of self-improvement, it's really one of those things. It's a way to stand out. Well, it's always, yeah, not that you should, you know, we don't want to stand, we might stand out, which is a good thing, Mm -hmm. but the goal is not to stand out. (laughs) The goal is to serve in the audience or serving the customers, but in what often happens, of course, I mean, what Guy Kawasaki says, well, all people have said this, but you know, you don't try to make money with your, the goal of your company, not to make money. You might make money. That's the idea. But if you focus on making the money, that's not where it's going to be. It's always in the service. The customer. Of the customer, which you chose. So it's not like you're a serf. It's not like you're a slave to the, you chose to start this company or work for this company. So yeah, I mean, we are. And the audience is your customer in this case. And exactly. No, exactly. For that moment, Mm -hmm. they might literally be the customer, but certainly in that, in that moment. Hi, so this name. Sorry, that's Japanese for yes, that's right. <laughs> Sorry. Well, I actually wanted to talk a little bit about the simplicity. Um, so one of the things I try to communicate to people is embracing white space on a slide mm-hmm. and in, in conversation. And there's just so much extraneous clutter, like logos, watermarks, backgrounds, page numbers. Yeah. Um, I found that these things are so ingrained in corporate culture and branding guidelines, you know, Mm -hmm. branding is going to come after me. You know, I've met with so much resistance. So, you know, you had mentioned about sort of being the squeaky wheel. Do you have any advice for folks like myself who want to act like a change agent for this issue? (laughs) I have a story. Okay. I won't say his name, so it's okay. But so even at Apple, Simplicity Apple, uh, they have, you know, hundreds or thousands of um, hundreds and hundreds of like engineers out in the field, salespeople and stuff. Mm -hmm. So they would be sent the decks, you know, to, to talk about the new, in those days, the new Power Mac or something. Right. But they were not like Steve Jobs keynotes. They were very, you know, nicer, but still six bullet points, the template, all that stuff. So there was a guy, a friend of mine, still a friend of mine, a uh, really smart guy, still with Apple. And he just would ignore that. He would get those decks and then just remove almost all of it because he knew, he knew the product. So he, and his customers, which he had thousands and he knew all these people, they knew him and he had a relationship with them. So he didn't really need all that extraneous stuff. The motivation for the company in this case, it was Apple is that, you know, they have to cover their butts in the way, do the engineers, this is what we want you to say. So yeah. we spell it out. It's mm-hmm. in the notes. It's like a couple of paragraphs of notes in the notes page for every mm-hmm. slide, <laughs> but even the slide itself, just so we, we know that the salespeople are saying this. Yeah. Well, okay. So he would not do that. And he was very effective, still is very effective. So he took the, you know, if you ask permission, the answer is no. So, you know, the old adage is better to get forgiveness than yes. permission. <laughs> So that was his technique. And, and um, Jerry Seinfeld had a thing where he talked about that, too, because Larry King asked him, Jerry, you must get like um, the, you know, the network guys because they're all idiots. Right. Well, everyone knows that. And they always ask you to you know change things and go, you know, what do you do? Well, I listen. 
and I say, thank you very much. And what do you do, Jerry? And then I don't do it. <laughs> so that's kind of how I do it in Japan because I don't want to be, you know, an, a difficult person. So I always agree. And yes. And then don't do it. <laughs> and I know I'm being tongue in cheek a little bit, but that you it's at the end of the day, it takes courage. Otherwise, I know anyone could do it. One of the things I've suggested, this is kind of what I did because I was I had very confined branding guidelines as well, is I kept all of the junk on the first and last slides. But then little by little, I started removing little junky pieces from the interior slides mm -hmm. just to back people yeah. away from it to see if yeah. anyone would notice yeah. until there was really nothing there except for my content. And that stuff was still in the front and back. And if it got emailed out, it would get all that stuff for confidentiality. But I found that that was a good way to test the waters with that and kind of prove that this was not mm. necessary for comprehension. Right. So with logos, you could, instead of all, you know, tiny logos on every slide before you begin, because the opening slide is up there a lot, you have just a massive logo yeah. hastily done <laughs> and then no logos throughout because people know who you are. And then yeah. at the end you could do it again. And if there was a Q and a time, that logo right. could be there, but it just seems awful. It's kind of, solipsistic, which I guess companies are, you know, it's always about me, me, me. Yeah. The world evolves around me and my brand, even though we're really yeah. there for the customer. I mean, I know because, you know, young startups, of course, it's all, no one knows who you are. So yeah, you want to get true. that logo and out there. But if you're a Microsoft or an Apple or something, I mean, yeah. All right. Give it a rest. And I think it's all we know. Yeah, there's some written code somewhere that when we start our work, our logos have to be on every single piece of anything that we send out, which yeah. I just find, I find interesting, but it's, again, that's just the pattern that people don't think about until you're shown kind of the effect that that's going to have. And yeah. then you realize something was fundamentally wrong. Like that's, that's the face that I get when I start talking about this, like, I knew something was wrong this whole time. I just didn't know what it was. Right. <laughs> And just to clarify, we're not people, you know, people don't understand what pre presentation Zen, if that's a thing. So people, oh, no, I mean, pictures of Zen gardens is not has nothing to do. Well, that's not <laughs> what it means. Right. Oh, OK. So it means putting, you know, beautiful eye stock images, which are kind of cliche now these days anyway, yeah, you know, know. stock photo. No, that's not what it means. <laughs> it doesn't even mean using images. I mean, I have my own style because I usually present on a stage or to a lot of people. But yeah. when I don't, which is I'm a college professor, I don't use slides when I when I teach, I use a whiteboard. Okay. Well, and students are usually doing something or we're using whiteboard and they're using whiteboard. So I'm helping to redesign a new building at the university. So that all the walls will be whiteboard because now it's, like, it's the front of the room, which means the teacher is this, you know, it's like the Kim Jong-un of North Korea. We just... <laughs> Only I am going to be talking and writing. That's ridiculous. So all the, yeah. I mean, if you go to Apple, this was his last company I've ever worked for. I mean, all the walls were whiteboards everywhere. It's interesting. I mean, I went to Amazon, the old Amazon office, the elevators were white, had whiteboards. You know, the walls were whiteboards. Really? Which is kind of wow. cool. Um, was a good idea. But um, that's not what presentations then means. It's really that, if anything, it, it's about those three rather broad, but important yeah. principles about slowing down and using restraint at the beginning, simplicity throughout visuals, which usually means, the, you know, um, avoiding the superfluous and removing the non-essential and then delivering that in a, a realistic way, a conversational way, mm -hmm. not a mechanical script, yeah. too, too overly scripted way. Yeah. And that's it. So and I pointed on my website for years to people. I mean, Sir Ken Robinson is one of my favorite talks. He doesn't use any visuals at all. Mm -hmm. And content is about 30% of his talk. If you like, what are his points? It comes down to like six bullet points. Cause I've done it. I've taken all the text from the Ted talk, Right. but it wouldn't work without all that other stuff. Yeah. You know, his delivery and his jokes and all that. So each case is different. There's a million different ways to do it, but taking people through bulleted <laughs> lists is not the way. And I, unless you're trying to be ironic, yeah. then it would, okay, maybe, but I can't think of how it has ever helped a single thing. Well, I think it, again, there's two things. It's that it's all we know, because that's what we learn coming in. It's the pattern that we see. But I think at the root of it is that 
people write novels on their bullet points and they read verbatim because it becomes sort of a script for them because they don't build in time to talk through their thoughts and not not memorize, definitely not memorize, but at least to talk through them and kind of internalize it in a way that you can speak to it naturally, like you mm-hmm. said, in a conversational tone. And they yeah. put that right on the slide yeah. to guide themselves instead of maybe keeping it in the notes or just keeping a, a sheet nearby for guidance. Yeah, sure. Um, just in case. <laughs> so. In case the computer explodes, it could happen. <laughs> right. So I saw Dr. Yamanaka. He won the Nobel Prize uh, a couple of year, couple of years ago. Very famous in Japan. Well, a Nobel Prize winner in medicine. So he's pretty, but he's so famous in Japan, he can't go to restaurants. And I saw his 70 minute presentation and it was very, you would think it was like a TED talk, a 70 minute oh, version. Wow. And he's a very no nonsense, very, but he had humor. He had, you know, there was emotion, lots of data, but it was very easy to see. I mean, his slides could be improved a little bit, mm-hmm. but, but so far above what most people would do. And he's a very serious person. Mm-hmm. And it was a lay audience, kind of like a TED style audience, but okay. it wasn't a TED because it was a 70 minute talk. But look, if a serious person like this gets it, he knows that we can't, I can't talk to an audience and take them through bullet points, even though he's talking about stem cell research and the great work that he's done. Every, every visual he had just helped, you know, sure. plus his delivery and all that. So, And maybe he's self-aware as to his own persona and he leverages that to his, yes. his advantage. And, and this was a point Chris Anderson made in his book is that, okay, he did use a podium and he did have his computer at the podium, but that's where he feels comfortable. Right. And he didn't use a remote control, but he w- often walked to the center and walked over to the slide often. That's, that's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no like rule. It's whatever works right. best for you. For me, podiums are not good for, <laughs> for some, for some people. Like if, if, it, you know, if they're going to come out and just wet their pants in the front of the, you know, don't force them to do that if they're more comfortable. Right. I completely agree because when I started the industry circuit, I was a total podium rat. Like I, I was hiding behind it practically, but I still was able to knock it out of the park because that was where I was most comfortable. So it didn't matter for me. Now, as I've gone along my own spectrum and wanted to improve and, and feel like I'm having more of a dialogue, I've extricated my yeah. vice grip yeah. from the podium and I'm walking around now. And it's been a, it's been hard for me to do that. It feels very vulnerable, but at the same time, I think you're right. If you're not comfortable walking around, they're going to feel that. So mm-hmm. do what feels right and don't worry about the rules of you're not a good speaker because you're not walking around. Right, right. There are no, no one way to do it. And, you know, the great thing when Ted went live 2000, I want to say 2005, something like that, when it went online, maybe 2006, not until then. It was sort of proof that, see, you can present because there are a lot of scientists on stage presenting Mm -hmm. using, you know, very, you know, nice visualization of data and images and all this. And it was sort of proof that, oh, you can do it differently. But now it's become cliche. And there's some real scammers that are now through TEDx. And Mm -hmm. TEDx is a great, a lot of TEDx's are wonderful. And a lot of great stuff has come from it. But it has also a low bar for some people to enter, although some of them, like the ones in Japan, are really good. Mm-hmm. And and it's become cliche in a way, even on TED, because, you know, they're so, sort of looking the same. And yeah. some people get too enamored with themselves and overly yeah. dramatic and <laughs> all the titles, how to change your life. And ten, OK, <laughs> <laughs> so it's too bad because the format is fine. It's great, actually. We need you can't just get information only through reading. But it's almost like a caricature of itself. It's become a caricature of itself. Yeah. And so we can laugh at it. Um, Yeah. And look for the bright spots. There are definitely. Oh, it's mostly good, but (laughs) it's, it's not, it's not the form. It's still, it comes down to the content, people and the the story. And you can, of course, in 18 minutes or 10 minutes or five minutes, you can make a difference and share something interesting or useful it depends on what your goal is. I mean, it can't usually change the world. Sometimes <laughs> it can. I mean, JFK's moon speech, I don't know how long that was, but that was a pretty big deal. Yeah. Same and Lincoln's address was like 270. The Gettysburg address was short, mm-hmm. often quoted. I can't quote it anymore because everyone quotes it now. <laughs> you know that one because his was 270 words. And then a guy who was very famous for the day, he was like the Paul Ryan of the day. Well, more famous than Paul Ryan. And his speech was like 10,000 words at that same, at that same um, ceremony. And no one remembers that, but they remember Lincoln's because it was short and not just short, but well-written and it it hit the right, it resonated, you know? Yeah. 
Well, I think, I think the best way to think about it is change something. You know, if you're, you're not going to change the world in a tactical corporate meeting, but you might change the direction of a strategy and then go next level above that. You might change someone's mind about a program. And then if you want to change the world, you can do that. And uh, presentation is the format to do that. No, it really is, especially today, because you can reach so many people. I mean, before a great talk might be for 10 people or 100 yeah. people, and it dies there. But if it's done well, which is why TEDx, I, I'm a big supporter of TEDx, because I, it's open to more people. Mm-hmm. And if it's done well, and they have to be recorded well, I think it's kind of a rule. But TEDx yeah. is have really good production values. Mm-hmm. And if it's really good, then they'll put it on TED.com. Yep. And a lot of the ones you think are TED are actually originally from TEDx, TEDx like yeah. uh, What's her name? Brené, because she's contacted me. But yes, Brené Brown was originally mm-hmm. Houston, I think. TEDx Houston, University of Houston, I think. So just a local TEDx talk and boom, huge. Her right? vulnerability talk was yeah. astounding. <laughs> yeah. That's a really no, nice she's, she's been a, no, I know. I love her work and it applies so directly to, to any kind of communication. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean that I'm, you know, I'm going to just let it hang out and, you know, tell you about my three ex-wives and all this stuff. and that. <laughs> That's not true, but I, I only have one. I mean, uh-huh. I have, I'm still married to my first wife. Okay. <laughs> so, that's what I mean. But you know what I mean? I do. Someone actually did, it's uh, again, built a straw man by saying, oh, that means we should just be soft and let it hang out and go, that's not what it meant at all. What What's going to serve? You know, I could tell my entire life story and I've even thought of ways of crafting my own story because I've endured quite a few health struggles and things like that. But I'd have to pick out the things, you know, like what car I had in college isn't going to serve. It's the part of the story that's going to resonate with someone out there that might have a similar experience and what I did to overcome that. Right. Exactly. So. So that's the essence of storytelling. It's not the plot. I mean, for example, I don't like boxing really, but I love the Rocky movies, especially the older, like Rocky, Rocky 38 or whatever it was, because (laughs) I just like, I kind of like that character. It's a character, it's like a cartoon character, but I like it, even though I don't like, because it's not about boxing. It's about whether perseverance and all these things. Mm -hmm. So, you know, another friend of mine, Patrick, um, was a diplomat in Japan. He did a TEDx talk, TEDx Kyoto talk. Uh, about being, you know, he's a gay man, older gay man, married, openly married, which you can only do uh, in this latest, I guess, uh, um, as a diplomat, you mm-hmm. could come out eight years ago. Anyway, it's great talk, standing ovation, very vulnerable. And like, well, most people in the audience are not a gay married, you know, 60 year old man. It's not right. about that. Everyone, it resonated because it wasn't, it was about being, well, about being discriminated against or really feeling different, feeling yeah. different, not be able, and everyone feels different. Everybody because Everybody knows what of, that's like. Exactly. For a lot of people, well, people think that I'm confident, but actually I'm not. Or they th- mm. they might think I'm smart, but I know I'm an idiot. So, you know what I mean? <laughs> Everyone has something. And there's a lot of self-talk, you know, that's, that's a lot of self-talk and hearing that you're not the only one doing that can help you learn how to just right. break that. So why I'm talking about this, it was relevant to your point. It's not really about the plot. You could write a story about anything. Yeah. Because it's, you know, uh, I, I saw the Brian Wilson movie called, uh, oh, what the heck's that called? <laughs> With, about Brian Wilson's life. But you, know, you might not be interested in Brian Wilson or I don't know who he is, mm-hmm. even though he's a genius or music, but it's not about that. It's about transformation mm-hmm. and about how this guy dealt with all this crap in his life mm-hmm. and has come out victorious in a way on the other side. Yeah. Or it could be a story where the person doesn't come out on the other side, but it's not about the plot. It's about the character often mm-hmm. and how it can resonate with the audience and what they take away from it. That's good storytelling. I even think that can apply to a corporate presentation where the presenter is making their stakeholder, the hero, they're guiding them on this journey. They're sort of the narrator and whatever hurdle they're trying to overcome is the villain. And, you know, thinking about it that way has worked well for me at least. And you're empowering them with the weapon of choice to, with the knowledge essentially to overcome. Amen. (laughs) Thanks. So, um, actually you mentioned TEDx Kyoto. So your, your why storytelling matters talk was fantastic. And I love that you talked about how many Pixar movies you've watched over and over with your children, but it's great that you actually picked out a few principles from Pixar in terms of effective storytelling. And that's the big buzzword in my field. So I would love if you could go into that a little bit. Yeah, well, I haven't seen that talk since I did it, since I don't watch my own talks, obviously, <laughs> kind of 
narcissist do you think I am? <laughs> so what did I say? Uh, I'm just trying to remember, but I probably said things like, uh, I mean, you have to make the audience care. That's the first thing. Right. I mean, I, and actually, uh, I forget the gentleman's name now, but um, at Pixar, who wrote um, Nemo and a bunch, he's been there from the beginning. And he did a TED talk about this too. But that is true. Even if it's a corporate presentation or at a data conference, mm -hmm. the, the most basic thing is you have to make them care somehow. Otherwise they're not with you. Yeah. And there's myriad ways to do that. I mean, it helps if you yourself are likable. So you don't want to hide, you know, you, you have to let yourself out too. Yeah. They have to somehow feel approachable to you on stage, but you have to let them know why your, your story, why your presentation is important, why it matters for them, right? not for you. There's nothing worse than when someone's five minutes into it and the audience is like, well, where the heck is this going? Right. Or why should I, I don't, why should I care about this? Yeah. This isn't for me. Yeah. Yeah. You want them to think it's for me right yeah. away. I don't think anything could be as bad. Like in Steve Jobs meetings, it would be, you know, 10 seconds into it. Be, I don't need to hear this. <laughs> Next. God. Wow. <laughs> That's know, it'd rough. Be like, it'd be like, you know, what is like rehearsal, not rehearsal, um, um, a tryout, you know, on yeah. Broadway or something where it's <laughs> Next. Right. <laughs> I gotta be me next. <laughs> so, so it's true in corporate world too. You gotta, yeah. especially for pitching something, yeah. you gotta let them know why this, you don't have their attention that long. I mean, on a TED stage is different. You have a little bit more time, although you really should <laughs> let them know right away, pretty, pretty much right away or you've lost them. But in the corporate world, you just don't have that much time. I know. And pitches are, I mean, especially in the technology field, we're always getting pitched. And that's something else that previous guest of mine, Oscar Santolaya, he's trying to help companies do pitches that don't put yeah. people to sleep that actually sell. Pitches where you maybe have 10 minutes, but the old elevator test is good. I mean, I wish this is not a video blog, but I mean, I'm always <laughs> giving people that look. <laughs> okay. You're, you're talking to me. It's been like 20 seconds and I, I, you know, he was and I know, head in an, you know, I know I'm being a little bit unfair because I'm not really that impatient, but the real world is that impatient. So it's, it's like, so you've got to grab me somehow. Yeah. And yeah. you know, if you can't get my attention, then you're, you know, you're giving me too many details for it. So what do people do? Well, you're, you're getting awfully deep into detail right away. Yeah. That's really common in Japan where they start a presentation talking about their company. Yeah. So tell me about it. <laughs> it's not just Japan. <laughs> So Gar, I call the next segment the upgrade. Typically it's a power tip for like PowerPoint, Excel or other tools that we use in our trade. But I have a feeling you have something a little bit different in terms of one way we can do our presenting work more effectively. Well, yeah, no matter what type of tools you use and tools matter, but they're ephemeral. I mean, 20 years will they mm -hmm. probably won't exist. It'll be something else. But what won't change is the human soul, the human yeah. spirit. And uh, so what I say is to, before you open up any technology is to, uh, you know, just get it, go to the whiteboard or get out pencil and paper or whatever. And I don't even say, you know, some people will push back for this, but I don't even like so-called analog devices on the iPad or the, you know, just yeah. get away from it, get away from it because you need a big room. Yep. You know, you can use the whole wall. And if you've, I don't know how it is these days, but when I worked at Apple, the walls were just filled. They were all whiteboard magnetic, you know, whiteboard walls, right? In mm -hmm. the old campus. I'm sure the new campus is fantastic, but they, they were just littered with posters of things that people are working on. Many of these things became TV commercials later, right? you know, or ideas, but it starts very analog, lots of sketching things. And I don't think that's going to go away. And I think you had said in your book that just the act of holding a pen in your hand somehow triggers creative part of your brain? Well, I don't want to sound like a, you know, a, a Facebook post and say <laughs> the science says, but there, there appears to be some, there is some research into this, you know, with the, having an, an, a pen or pencil, something in your hand, this writing tool mm -hmm. is much better than, for example, educating elementary school kids and getting them right to typewriters to write. You, you got it. You know, we sketch that. It's not just the writing of letters, but the sketching of ideas. Yeah. And it's calming and there's a certain focus that's not the clacking of keys. Yeah. And I have found that once I read your book, I always uh, brainstorm on post-its and it's, it just feels so much more productive than trying to sit in front of a screen and just generate. No, we're in front of screens all the time anyway. Yeah. So as much as you can, if you ever can get away from it, you should do so. Right. So I was talking to a, a famous, I can't remember his name, but I keynote at a big <laughs> he must conference. must be very famous. <laughs> well, you know, it's not my genre. It was, oh, okay. uh, uh, 
you know, mystery writing as a novel. He sold oh, millions. Okay. Oh. Hmm. So I asked him, older gentleman in his 70s. So I asked him, uh, uh, so what are your tips for storytelling? Because he's a really friendly guy. And he said, even before I start preparation, which he does use like sticky notes and he, on a big whiteboard and all this stuff before he writes the novel. Mm. But before that, he said, there's lots of thinking time. Yeah. There's this think and walks on the beach thinking about his characters and the structure mm. and what's going to happen. And I think you can apply that to, to business presentations as well. Or any kind of, you know, business intelligence would you first think, yeah. really think about it first uh, before you rush right into writing outlines and things like, like that. that. Thinking time, then, you know, sketching analogs or preparation time. Mm -hmm. And then if you're going to use technology, then you can build it it'll be much easier because you've done the hard work, so which is much eliminating so. a lot of stuff you don't need. Oh yeah. I've found myself creating, designing final decks and then having swaths cut because they weren't relevant and all that work was wasted. So yeah. I absolutely believe that when you have the structure and the meat of your content established mostly before you go into building phase, then it's, yeah. you know, there's much less work lost. Yeah. I mean, still, you end up throwing a lot of your ideas away, but they're not in digital form because right. you know, they haven't been formatted. You, again, you kind of go a, a hundred steps to, you know, to keep that the two, but right. you know, you've sketched it out on, on sticky notes or something, or you've thought about things and thrown it away, mm -hmm. but still I have to write it down. If I don't write it down, I forget everything. I'm so. the same. Oh, I'm, <laughs> I'm exactly the same. Sometimes I'll just uh, dictate into Evernote, into my phone, if I don't have access to notes and just speak like yeah, the thoughts and, yeah. and that's a good way. Well, this is why the, the iPhone or anyway, the smartphone, it's great. Yeah. It's not good. I hate it as a phone. I can't hear anything, but <laughs> as everything else. So I used to, before big keynotes, I remember years ago when it just, iPhone just came out, I go, you know, I go jogging, mm -hmm. but I'd end up just mainly walking fast because then I could talk into it. I, mm -hmm. if I would, I wouldn't say I have to come up with an idea or ideas, but just having that with you yeah. at all times now to track, like I use a Nike app to record how far I run or whatever. Mm -hmm. And something will just occur to me. Yep. And then, you know, then you're like, oh, okay, so I got an idea. <laughs> and if you, if you don't put it down, it's gone by the yeah. time you're home. That's oh yeah. Gosh. Always what I found. I think that's true for, I think that's true for just about everybody. Yeah. But. <laughs> all right. So this is our last question. Think hard here. This imagine mm -hmm. this very plausible scenario. You're at home practicing a piano rendition of Thelonious Monk's Round Midnight when you suddenly get pulled through a rip in time and you're brought back to the precise moment you're about to give your first presentation ever. Uh -huh. What would you today say to the you back then? You know, I don't have any presentation disaster story and I don't have any um, problem when, and again, it's not something that comes natural to me, but I'm trying to think, was I really, did I really, was I terrible when I was younger? Uh, here's the deal. <laughs> I was too, when like in college, I was too confident. I'm much less confident with every year that it goes by. Mm. Um, it's like education, you know, the more, I mean, if you want to become an educated person, you have to be very comfortable with realizing you don't know anything. You're the student, not the teacher. And the more, yeah, someone gave me a t-shirt that said professor, because I'm a professor, which I put, I'm using air quotes now, right. although that's my job. <laughs> although that's my job. So someone thinks I'm a professor. <laughs> They gave me a full tenure professor job. So I guess so. But I, I can't wear that. So I, they gave me another one. It says student. And nice. I sometimes wear that. And then not as a joke, because that that is uh, oh, I, <laughs> I feel forever. The further I go in the spectrum, the less I know. And I'm, hum I'm humbled by that every day. So I, I think having that mindset will keep you in a sense of wonder and always expanding and learning how to perfect your craft. Yeah. So, I mean, you get better with age and people say, you know, I worry, you know, this is a million books written about this, but worry less. I'm much more in the, the moment. So that's what yeah. I would say. Oh, I remember in my twenties, this isn't about presentation, but I was always worried about the future so in my early twenties and oh my God, I'm going to, you know, it just, this is, this, this is the moment. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there was an old perfect. movie. I forget. What was it called? The verdict with, um, What's his name? Paul Newman. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, down on his out, down on his luck, lawyer, last case, last chance to survive. And he would just force himself say, this is the case. There are no other cases. I mean, right. he'd stay up until five in the morning, mm -hmm. you know, drunk working on the case. I mean, you know, he's like homework in college, mm -hmm. like when you're cramming or is horrible. It's like writing a book. Actually, you have editors on your case all the time. And anyway, but you say that does there's no future. There's no past. There's only this moment. This is the case. There are no other cases or right. whatever you're working on. 
just work on that. Yeah. Well, so that's, that's not really about presentation, but um, okay. <laughs> I, I recommend a book. Here's a book called <laughs> one. What's it called? One bird. It's not one bird at a time, but it's something like that. <laughs> what is it called? But it's one bird. Google it for the, those one people who are still listening. Um, there's Dan Pink, you know, Daniel Pink. He's yeah. got a, he wrote a whole new mind, a bunch of books. Mm -hmm. So we met in Japan, 2007, he came over. So we had him over and I asked him what, and I was working on presentations then. That was my first book mm -hmm. and his advice. And I was overwhelmed, like, oh my God, there's so many things I could, but it can only be 250 pages. And he just said, I recommend this book, which is one, something like one bird at a time. I'll, and it I'll make sure to look it up and I'll make sure it's on the show notes yeah, page. It's really good because it's about, although I did buy the book, I only kind of breezed through it. I got the idea, which is that <laughs> it's a really good story about like, like the son had a big project. He had, you know, draw a hundred birds or something for the big homework project. And his father just said, just one bird at a time. And that's how you approach a book. That's how you approach, you say you have a big 20 minute presentation. Don't try to do 20 minutes. Don't finish it in one setting. It's just, one it's just one, one minute in the next minute. And let's just, just get to work on it. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of, I know it's a simple thing. I should charge him $10,000 for that advice. Sounds simple. But you just have to, you know, remind yourself, slap yourself that, Okay. And because you start worrying about all these things, are they going to like it? Are they, yeah. you know, are they, are they going to get it? Yeah. Just start working on it. And then things that you didn't even know, you, you can get these aha moments as you're working on it. When, especially when you start, if you start off in the analog phase, yeah. you know, with whiteboards and, and where you can really think about things. Well, I also think it's, there's a lot of fear in our field for presenting because these aren't people who are have TED aspirations. They're very numbers oriented, uh, data scientists, you know, <laughs> presenting in front of people wasn't exactly sometimes what they signed up for. Sure, sure. And I think sometimes people tend to think that if they don't nail it, it's a failure instead of an opportunity to learn, change tack and grow. Yeah. from there. So I just, even, even when I've totally bombed out or had total disasters during even recent presentations, mm -hmm. I don't see those as failures. They're just complete learning opportunities for me to expand. Yeah. There, there was something Benjamin Zander said about this. And again, you can Google Benj Benjamin Zander, who I met in, uh, at Ted. And, um, actually when I met him, he, uh, he was, I was introduced to him and he hugged me <laughs> And he's 70 year old, something approaching 70, you know, the conductor. And he goes, oh, a big bear hug. You know? <laughs> That's just the kind of person he is. Hmm. So you brought up an interesting point about, you know, it's a, you can learn from your failure. What he says is because he works with talented musicians who are very nervous about getting it right, even though they're brilliant already, mm -hmm. still they worry about it. And he says, that's not what it's about. It's not about being perfect on that day, you know, two weeks from now, mm -hmm. it's just about contribution. You're going to do all the work necessary. You're going to do your best and that's all you can do. So actually I've never been really nervous in a presentation because I, I mean, I won't, I can't say my clients names, but mm -hmm. I've been in New York city. I'll just say it's, you know, downtown. Okay. And it's <laughs> huge. 300 people, top people. I should be nervous and I'm not because they invited me. They kind of know what I have and I did my best. I prepared my best. I did my best. And when you do that, I'm here to make a contribution. Mm -hmm. That's all I can do. And I'm very lucky. And I think it's a kind of privilege in a way, because I know some people that, I mean, a lot's riding on it, you yeah. know, it could, but they, they get the deal or not. But still, if you approach it in the spirit of, I'm just here to make a contribution, yeah. to teach you something, to share something in an honest way. And when you think of it that way, it takes a lot of pressure off. Yeah. Look, it just is what it is. And you know, life is ephemeral anyway. We're only here for a short time. So we right. might as well enjoy and be in the moment. And there's no know. reason to fear presenting more than death, yeah. according to that statistic. Speaking of, uh, I won't say the guy's name, but very, very famous guy uh, gave a presentation in France and he, about one of his famous books. And he told me this. He said, uh, then the CEO goes up and says, you know, I don't agree with any of that. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. <laughs> and I said, what did, cause I asked what was like his worst experience? And I go, wow, what did you do? And he goes, what can I do? I got paid. Yep. <laughs> and I did my best. And he, and of course the guy is, you know, he's great. He's doing very well in life. And it was, he had a great talk, I'm sure, but some people aren't going to get it. And yeah, it's true. Yeah. It's what you're saying is not for everyone. And you just have to try to serve as many as you can, but there's always, you're right. You let it go and you live in that moment. That's fantastic. 
Well, Gar, unfortunately, our time has run out. But I just want to thank you so much for being a huge inspiration to me. So many presenters in all levels of the world, any capacity. And, you know, this conversation has meant so much to me professionally. But I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for sharing your time and wisdom for my very fortunate listeners. So can you let the listeners know where they can keep up with you? All right. Well, uh, if they're on LinkedIn, I just, I signed up 10 years ago, but I've just started to use it. Okay. <laughs> so I, that would be, that's because that's where everyone's at these days. Uh, I find it's, it's a good format. Of course, presentationzen.com and okay. the, at Twitter is at presentationzen. Okay. And all of those will be on the show notes page. Thank you again so much. It's such an honor and I really hope our paths will cross again. Yes. Well, please come to Japan or we'll meet up in the United States someday. I'm in. Okay, that could be the defining moment of my career. <laughs> I wish for everyone listening who is a fan of someone who's had such a profound impact on their work and their life to have the chance to connect with them the way I just did. It's amazing. And it's perfect timing right before a holiday where we all take a moment to have thanks for the amazing abundance of joy and good in our lives. And I hope that if you hadn't heard of Gar before, that you'll now voraciously consume every piece of work and be changed forever as I and thousands of aspiring stage royalty were changed. If you like what you've heard, please, please hop on over to iTunes to subscribe, leave a rating and review. Ratings and reviews are so appreciated because they affect the rankings and help this content get out to other listeners like yourself. And I'll be reading out my favorite ones on future episodes. And to catch all of the resources mentioned on this episode, visit leahpika.com slash 025. You'll find lots of good stuff there and how to follow Gar. And if you could leave me a comment or suggestions, that's great because I want to hear about the challenges you face every day. And today's presentation inspiration is from, you guessed it, Gar Reynolds. And it speaks to the number one comment I get during my sessions and workshops that truly resonates with my students. And that's about simplicity. Gar says, simplicity is not easy. In fact, it's hard. So true. And, you know, we add so much noise to our stories when really taking away is what allows our message to shine through. Hope you agree. A very Merry Turkey Day to you all. See you soon. Namaste. Wait, I forgot where I was going. It was a really good point. Oh, I know. Okay. Available at fine stores. Um, love and mercy. Love and mercy. That's what you need. Okay, that's it. Industry circus. A uh, circuit. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of a circus. That's Freudian. <laughs> Freudian. Um, <laughs> like if I ever had a stroke, I, those terms would come out because after you have a. <laughs> that you have to cut the logo. Oh, just a moment. God, my phone never rings. I forget it's a phone. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Sorry.